don't forget, you're going to die. This is the We Croak podcast, and I am your host, Hansa Bergwall. With our first guest interview episode of 2019, we're so excited to be back. I've got a great calendar of writers and guests coming, so be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. Today, I've got a conversation for you with Heather Haverleski about her book of essays, What If This Were Enough?, Heather is a really fascinating thinker and writer. She has an advice column called Ask Polly for New York Magazine and The Cut. So if her words resonate with you, you can write in, and that's kind of fun, right? And then her book of essays is really about the pervasive cultural delusions that we just share and don't think about and what they mean when they're actually in our heads uh, to our life. So we talk about death and lots of other you know, strange things, cultural artifacts. In this conversation, you'll hear everything from Marie Kondo to Tony Soprano to what it's like to be a parent. We went on a little long, but Heather Haverleski is just so much fun to talk to, and I think you'll feel the same way. So without further ado, here we go. Thank you so much, Heather Haverleski, for joining us. Thanks for asking me to join you. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, we'll be talking today about your new book, What If This Were Enough? And uh, yeah, it's, I thought it was a really interesting group of essays. It just, it made me wish I was like more like completely curious about pop culture all the time from all the insights you're able to mine out of, you know, things on TV or in the world today. I have to say that book is really a, the culmination. I mean, it it's pretty hard to sit down and write a book like that because there's so much granular kind of pop culture information in it. And so a lot of it just came out of having written about pop culture for years and looking at a lot of my work over the last five years in particular and asking, kind of seeing the themes that were very common between different pieces I'd written about different um, parts of our culture. And it was almost like this glorious, insane theme came out of it, which was, look at what escapists we are, was a, it was a big part of it, which dovetails nicely with the theme of your podcast. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was almost like death contemplation, memento mori practice is all about looking at the things you don't look at enough. And you almost did the opposite of looking at the things we look at too much, but actually like seeing them in a different way. Um, that we don't usually see them. So one thing I have to ask you about as we get started is you must have written this book, you know, a couple of years ago. So you, you had no idea that Marie Kondo, the woman from the, the Art of Tidying Up, would become the 2019 winter sort of famous sensation of the moment. And you have some pretty choice words for her. <laughs> and I was wondering if you had any updates or thoughts about this drive to zen your space and make it clear. I I love her. I you know I wrote about her because I got her first book and I've never read anything that made me want to throw things out in a more urgent way. I mean I think that the I actually think that the um, the basic organizing principle of does it spark joy or not is just brilliant. And uh, it's so simple, but it's so perfect. And, and actually, I almost feel like, I, you know, people say condoize a lot. I almost feel like I've, I've condoized my life since I started writing an advice column. But when I read her book, I just had this feeling like, oh, my God, 
you know, I have so many things that really spark the opposite of joy. And I think one of the things that I really love about her the most is she talks a lot about how, you know, 25 year old to do lists that are still haunting you that are still like sitting around your house staring at you. In particular, books can be like sources of guilt, like books you haven't read, but that you obviously don't want to read since you haven't read them yet. I have a lot of trouble throwing out books. I actually haven't really completed my Marie Kondo graduate degree in that way. <laughs> in that way, um, but you know, clothes that don't fit anymore. I I love Marie Kondo so much. I mean, I hope that came through in that essay. The essay was really questioning. You know, she had written I think her third book, and it was sort of on the minutia of folding, and and you know. It sort of begged the question, like, you know, why do I need three books to do this when the basic idea is so simple? But I just, I, I really love the whole, the whole existence of hoarding, I think is a really interesting subject. The fact that we live these li our lives as if we're going to have our stuff forever is just absurd. I, I find uh, redecoration and refurbishing houses to be one of the weirdest, most kind of escapist denial of death sort of activities that you could possibly engage in. You know, it's like you're always saving up to fix your bathroom so your bathroom looks right instead of wrong. And by the time you've saved the money, the trends in bathrooms have changed. And now you've got a dated bathroom two years after you just spent 30,000 on your bathroom. I mean, I, I, I mention these things because I'm a little bit obsessed with design as a means of like having a clear mind and, and having an uncluttered environment. So it's, it's not like I don't understand the why aesthetics would matter to someone. But anyway, I just, I feel like Kondo really has her finger on the pulse. I'm not crazy about the show, honestly. I'm kind of surprised that people are talking about it as much because the books I feel like are get right to the heart of the matter. And I, although I find her delightful, I don't feel like the show is that well produced and it's, I don't, I don't find it that compelling. I have to watch a few more episodes. The first two I didn't love. Yeah. I, I had never read the books, but I, I knew about her. And when it came out with the show, I also decided I loved her, but also kind of agreed when you called her, you said, uh, but maybe it takes a slightly unhinged person to reverse our decades of mindly mindless consumption. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, you, can... you know, to be that out of step, right, with the mainstream is right. pretty incredible. And but, you know, these hoarders that they show are very out of step with the mainstream, too. I mean, they they talk about living like you're you're never going to die. I mean, it, hoarding is such a stra really strange kind of attached, clingy state of denial. What I thought was interesting about your take on Kondo and the sort of the drive to tidy up or to look at your space as a reflection of your life is on the one hand, you said, yes, we're filling our lives with needless, so much clutter that we can't think about, you know, who we are and what's important to us. But then you also make a note that maybe this drive toward, you know, minimalism that's taking over is because, you know, we've filled up our spaces and for capitalism to keep raging on, we have to let it all go so that we can refill it back up and constantly redesign and uh, that it could just become appropriated into this system of mindless consumption that can take up a whole life. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's where condo stands on it necessarily, but I do think that that's how it's generally used. It's like throw out all this stuff so you have more room for new stuff. <laughs> 
yeah, it was a really interesting sort of take. It's a, it's definitely on people's minds today. Of like, what are we going to do with all this stuff? Maybe it's just a new year kind of thing. And then, you know, um, this is the We Croak podcast. So what happens with this stuff after you go? And you had a really interesting moment in the end of the essay about your father's wallet, who, of course, he passed away um, a number of years ago, I understand. And you still have his wallet and you hold on to it. And it's, I guess, one of the few things that you kept. Can you just talk a little bit about why you kept it and why that item and not others? Well, his wallet had a bunch of different uh, old driver's license in it. Or maybe it was that he had this box that had a bunch of driver's license in them. And then I took the driver's license licenses and put them in his wallet. But you know, the the licenses are really interesting because you have this picture every, you know, I can't remember if it's three years or five years in North Carolina. It's probably five years. But you have this picture of a person at this kind of very unguarded, not very celebratory moment in their lives when they're just getting their picture taken. I mean, it, you know, it's different now, but you used to have to get your photograph retaken every time and you had to go to the actual DMV office to do it. And you would just go and stand in front of a red background or a blue background and based on, you know, whether you wore corrective lenses or not. I mean, it was all kind of archaic in the old days, how they did this stuff. But the pictures of my dad are just, um, I don't know, just, I think watching bearing witness to sort of the aging process, seeing these same kind of parallel pictures of him every few years, it felt like a reminder of just the, the brevity of life. But also there are these little plastic things that you can hold in your hands that someone held in, that my dad held in his hand and kept in his wallet. So it's almost like this strange, like intimate object. And then the other side of it was, you know, my dad had, money in his wallet that I still have in his wallet. And, you know, it's, it's sort of the feeling of sort of bearing witness to someone's just this, that suspended moment when they're never going to spend that money. Right. And the money is, you know, has the year 1994, 1992, 1985 on it. Um, he died in 1995. The way that sadness makes you appreciate that you also are just going to have a limited time on the earth and someone is going to sort through every single thing you own when you disappear and they're going to have to do something with it. So, I don't know. It's a strange kind of humbling acceptance of reality, right, to have something like that in your midst. So I didn't really, my dad didn't own a lot of stuff and he wasn't that into stuff. He was sort of... um much more into experience and knowledge. But those were, I don't know, I kind of felt lucky that I got those driver's licenses because just looking at them, I keep them in my desk drawer. They just remind me of him. I, I feel connected to him when I when I look through them every now and then. Hey, you have this really beautiful quote in that part where you say, just when you're starting to get comfortable, you disappear. And maybe only one or two of your things will seem important to someone else when you're gone. I was wondering if, um, you know, someone who loved you after you passed, what item of yours you would recommend that they hold on to that says something about you? Oh, I would never recommend. <laughs> I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I think 
you don't really know what what other people are going to care about or see as the essence of you. I have this this uh, drawing that my daughter did of me when she was about three. Um, I have two daughters, and they're 12 and 9 now. But the younger one, when she was three, did this drawing of me. And it's really funny because it's like I'm wearing these slippers that I wore all the time. I'm wearing these pink kind of soft pants that I wore around the house. I mean, it was kind of like my at-home pajamas that I was wearing. But the, but the way that she drew them was so specific. You could tell that I, you know, she she drew this blue shirt with a little red design on it in the middle. Like, she, you could just tell that she <laughs> saw me dressed in this sloppy way every day. I mean, it's just interesting to see how kids kind of see you. So, you know, if I put on makeup, my kids say, oh, where are you going? You know, if I, if I look decent, they're like, oh, what's going on? And my dogs are like that too. They can always tell when I'm about to leave. They get a little nervous and sad because I'm dressed up. So yeah, I don't, I don't know what, what item or items would, would matter to anyone else. I do think that, you know, I've, I've kind of got a habit of looking at a lot of the stuff that I own through the eyes of like, oh God, like, well, you know, I don't want anyone to have to look through this stuff. Not because I'm embarrassed of things, but just like, I have just have too much stuff. I mean, I don't have, I don't have a lot of material stuff, but I have, you know, walls of journals and a lot of photographs and a lot, just a lot of, just, I have notes from eighth grade. I was kind of a pack rat when I was a kid and I'm having trouble you know, I mean, once you've had something since 1983, it's kind of hard to like look at it and, and not say, well, this is pretty interesting. You know, the problem is, is that you, you sort through things that you never look at and, you know, you, you read something interesting from eighth grade. And then, you know, five hours later, you're like, well, I can't throw this stuff out. Like I just went on this weird journey back to eighth grade. I can't, you know, I can't get rid of it now. It's, yeah. I, I, but I do think that people should just feel no guilt and throw everything away that belongs to someone else because yeah, what all that happens is someone dies and then you get all their stuff and then it becomes part of your massive raft of BS that somebody else has to sort through. Yeah, right, exactly. It's not up to us what someone would keep. They might throw it all the way. They might keep one thing. I want to say, though, that that's a really sweet image I really resonate with because of the uh, picture your daughter drew because... Uh, my mother actually passed away when I was very young. Um, and, you know, we spent so much time like putting this proud image of ourselves to the world and trying to make it flawless. And yet when I think back on my mother and the sort of images I've kept in my mind and treasured, they're often very like, you know, uh, intimate, sweet, perhaps a little bit embarrassing, you know, trudging around in pajamas kind of moments. And I never yeah. thought about that before. Yeah, I mean, you, the sort of glory and the terrible tragedy of losing a parent is that you um, you just know that person so in such a different way and so well in a way that, that no one else does, you know? I mean, you just have such a... They're like kind of... I mean, <laughs> it's strange. It's almost like... I mean, I don't know how you feel, but I kind of... The reality of death aside, I do feel kind of like I carry around the way that my dad was with me and you know he wasn't a perfect person but um I really feel you know like it's a an amazing privilege to be close enough to someone that you understand how they are at their best moments and their worst moments and their sort of mundane weird pajama moments too I mean it's that's sort of like 
that level of connection is is pretty precious. And I think that actually that informs or it should inform the way we have relationships as adults because it's easy, I think, in your 20s and 30s in particular to believe that friendships and relationships should be should give you something, people should support you and they should be entertaining and they should be there for you when you need them and you should be doing fun things together. And actually, just merely the the familiarity, you know, I, I think I used to see friendships as like, does it function or not? Does this person give me what I need? And now, I mean, I, I, I have a few difficult friendships that I've kept around and they don't always spark joy, but there's something sort of beautiful about knowing, you know, the friends you know as well as family and the things, uh, the, the oddities about them that, that just are that same level of intimacy where you just know who they are at a deep level. You're connected to them at such a deep level. Even if they frustrate you, they're, you know, that they, they feel like, like a part of you in a way. Yeah, I like that idea. We don't need all this stuff and all this perfection. We just need spaces to be sweet, intimate, vulnerable with each other. That's what we'll remember and enjoy. Um, well, I think that's part of living living in reality too is it's not about comparing what you have relationship-wise or, or you know, environment-wise or space-wise or thing-wise. It's not about comparing those things to some ideal, you know. It's it's about living inside of what you have and appreciating it for what it is and feeling a connection to the sort of rough edges of reality instead of always wanting reality to be shaped a different way. Um, and that includes people, you know, wanting people to be a different kind a more exciting, more wonderful, sort of delightful person. Um, I don't know. I, there are days when obviously I think we all are sort of like, I reject all that I see and I want it to be better. But the more that you can take in what's around you already and appreciate it, I mean, it's pretty simple, but we're just so trained to turn away from what we have and turn our faces towards things that seem better or that we're told we're supposed to want. I really yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, you brought up a little bit before the topic of friendship and, you know, how important that is. And you have this essay in your book called Adults Only, where I was really feeling for you. It's sort of about your frustration with polite society and <laughs> micro brews and all the ways that, you know, people don't um, let loose, have fun, be vulnerable, have emotions at, you know, some of the parties that you, or dinner parties that you might end up at, and um, that it's hard to make more friends as adults. I sort of, I heard your frustration, and I think that's true for a lot of people. And I think friendship is a topic that we really don't talk about enough. I think we put too much pressure on our primary relationships if we're even lucky enough to have them and we need friends. So I was just wondering if you, you know, had any thoughts about beyond uh, the frustration about uh, friendship. Well, I mean, the party in question, it's kind of funny because sometimes you can you can meet a group of people and you feel like this, you know, I match these people. We make sense together. The, you know, this is a great group. I like these people. We get along. And and you go to a setting where it's like I've been invited to a party. Everybody here is, you know, delightful in one way or another. You know, everyone is that it's it's a diverse group of people. They read, they they're informed. They have to, you know, they can make conversation, make small talk about anything. And, Look, they're wonderful children. Nothing is wrong here. Everything seems great. 
Um, there are, you know, there are dishes, there are, there are drinks. This is a delightful party. And, and you can just inside feel like this is not what I want. And part of that, I think, is I think that I've learned that I like interacting with people one-on-one -on -one a lot better than I do in groups at this point in my life. I think that I have always been drawn to groups, especially like established groups of people just hold a kind of thrill, like I could fit in here. This would be great. But I think I'm working something out about family dynamics in that. I mean, I, I've had a lot of different groups of friends and few of them have really fit that well with me. I have one group of friends right now that are, I, I really love them and I fit right in with them. And yet I think there's something about a group that brings out kind of like a, a misfit feeling, even when I'm perfectly in step with people. But I, but I do think that there, it's interesting. Something that I've noticed as I've gotten older is I can hang out with a group of people and everything on paper looks great, but I always feel just like this is not working. I mean, this can happen in individual friendships too, where you meet with someone for dinner and it's great and it's, they're charming and you enjoy each other's company. And every single time you get in the car, drive away and think, why do I feel a little bit dissatisfied? Why, you know, it's, you don't, you can't get everything from a group of friends and you can't get everything from a, one person, but sometimes there's just a feeling like, this person doesn't want to go to the places that I want to go, you know, and it's not, that's, that sounds a little bit like a superiority complex, but it's not necessarily, it's sort of like, sometimes I think this person is really not an idea person, you know, like this person really isn't into ideas or with that group that, that I was talking about, it's sort of like these people value ideas, but are sort of all repeating ideas that they read somewhere as opposed to riffing and improvising on ideas that are bouncing around in their own heads. And I mean, that's a, kind of like a, I, I'm sure that it's somewhat of an illusion, you know, whatever I'm in, interpretation I'm giving to a room full of people, like it's inherently false, right? I've got to be wrong because people are too different from each other. But I do think that trusting your instincts and saying like, well, you know, I tried and I, I always feel a little bit uneasy and not that happy after I see this person. So I'm done, you know, like, and I don't have to justify it. I don't have to, you know, call a new friend and apologize that and, and announce that they won't be a permanent friend to me. I mean, it's just, it's, it's almost like, I feel like I used to be ruled by what I should want, you know, and also the guilt of like rejecting someone. And now it's like, I, I sort of have started to realize that you can't replace connection there. You either have connection with people and you trust or you, you know, and you have a certain feeling about interactions that feels right or you don't. And sometimes the connection that you have, I mean, it's interesting. Sometimes you leave an interaction with someone and you think, my God, you know, like I, I have a friend who's in her nineties. And sometimes when I think about seeing her, I kind of honestly think, this will be a little bit of a chore because I really do have to do a lot of listening and I don't talk that much about myself like I sometimes do with other people. But every time I leave her house, I think I really love spending time with her. I don't know why. I don't know what it is. I just think she's great. And it just feels good. It feels good in my life. I feel connected to her. So it's interesting 
the difference, these gradations between different people, I think that I've learned to just trust my instincts and say, you know, and lean into whatever the reality of the situation is instead of sort of, you know, dreaming up reasons why I should, you know, be in certain social circles or behave in certain ways or not, you know, or ignore my feelings essentially about certain people. So that was at the heart of that essay. I mean, it was meant to be kind of a fun, you know, jaunty little romp through the feeling of dissatisfaction in the middle of a party. But at the end of the essay, I'm throwing this toy for a dog and it's so much more satisfying. And the dog, and it's because the dog is conflicted, openly conflicted. I mean, I, I decided that that was part of what I did disliked about that group was there was never, everything was packaged. There was never like, I like something that I am immediately going to contradict and that's okay, you know, or I have an opinion that I know is somewhat insupportable, but you know what, I'm an animal and I, you know, that's the way animals are, if that makes any sense at all. Well, you know, what really resonated with me about that essay was, I think you're right, we are often so constricted, just socially, like no one's putting our, us in shackles or anything, but like the limits of what we believe we can do in a group of friends at a dinner party is like so small. And we get that feeling of no connection because how can we really express ourselves and be ourselves if, you know, if we're at this party and the only thing that seems appropriate to do is, you know, pick up a drink, move it from like around waist level to our mouth up and down and make small talk and look at people. It's just, it's not fun. It's not ecstatic. It's not vulnerable. It's, you know, very um, stifling. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you ended the thing with uh, playing with the dog, which was, which was beautiful. And I also feel like there's a part of me that just wants to be like, but it's also on us, you know, to shake it up, to stir up the pot, to, you know, say the thing that we really need to say to turn it into, you know, a dance party or uh, create a funny game or some way of breaking the ice that just gets us out of that, like, narrow social constriction so we can actually get to know each other, make friends, and not spend our limited time on Earth and sort of uh, being bored and feeling unconnected from each other. Well, I, t I completely 100% endorse that. And I do think that when I throw a party... In the past, I have been extremely adamant about this is how, you know, we're playing board games or we're going to dance or, you know, like here's what's going to happen. I mean, that can be kind of oppressive in its own way. But I want to say also, though, that part of what I dis dislike about some settings is just that it's written into the situation that your efforts to change what's happening will not be appreciated. You know what I mean? And I do think also that as a woman, sometimes it's not really as a, like, say, you know, you're a new female friend in a group and you show up at a party and you find it boring and you, you know, decide to stir things up and make everybody have more fun. I mean, that is like a recipe for a disaster. Um, it's just not, you know, being pushy about what you think people should be doing at their party is, it's not, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't go very far. I, you know, I can't speak for how, how well men pull that off, but um, as a woman, I can tell you that that's not really going to work. And also that, you know, there was something in the air at that party that was just like, you will do what we're doing. Sometimes you just show up and you are yourself. And it's like, just by being yourself, you're sticking your foot in your mouth constantly, or that you're just, 
you're stepping in in a mess left and right. I mean, that's the the message that's sent. Or or there's like a oh, you're so zany, you know, like it, I don't know. It's it's hard to describe. I mean, I think that I do think that with that particular instance, my experience of it today would would be very different. This was about two years ago. And I was kind of going through something at the time. And I think I had a like massively negative attitude <laughs> about socializing, you know, and I, I think everybody goes through stages like that. So it's hard to say, but you know, I agree with the spirit of what you're saying. I think that like, we're just accepting that everyone is supposed to play along, you know, I mean, I, I think there are different, uh, you know, by the same token though, I think there are situations where, I mean, I think the irony, right. Of that particular setting was, I have another group of friends that are very different from me and I really do just show up and sort of let myself get led around by the nose wherever their conversations are rambling. I ramble along with them and it's really satisfying. I feel like the, for some reason, those friendships feel a little bit more like family, which might be an, (laughs) have some negative connotations, but you know, yeah, it's just like what I said about my friend who's older. It's sort of like, you, you know, you just never really know what is going to bring you satisfaction and sometimes letting go of that impulse to like improve something and just saying like, this is what it is. You know, we're going to, we're going to sit around and watch football and or whatever we're going to, you know, I'm going to do whatever they're doing and kind of, you know, nod and yes, along with it. And, and, you know, somehow there are times when you do things like that and you just feel like you go home and you think that was really good. That was exactly, you know, it's just like, it is what it is. You know, I, I, I showed up, it was pretty concrete and I feel very relaxed and I felt like I was really present and everyone was really present. And we talked about whatever came, came up and it wasn't like anyone had an agenda to make things interesting. And it was completely, it just worked, you know? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm probably saying too much about this, but I'm, I am personally fascinated by just the little dissatisfactions of a social life and how to kind of improve upon the sort of limited ways we're given to interact with each other. There was a time with my advice column where I would say to people who were moving to a new town and didn't have any friends, I would say things like, throw a Taco Tuesday night, you know, like make a bingo night, like do weird things, have host strange. I mean, it's not that strange now. I think millennials are a little better at this stuff. You know, stick your neck out and Show people what you like to do and see who likes to do the same kinds of things. I really do applaud that approach. Thinking about the dissatisfactions of a social life, I actually think it's really important. We're in the middle of an epidemic of loneliness and disconnection. It is having real world consequences in terms of things like addiction and suicide and like life satisfaction. And people almost think, think it should be like something they can take for granted. Like they'll have friends, they'll, They'll go to the Super Bowl party and deeply connect or what have you. And yeah. it's just not true. Like we have to admit that, especially as we get into adults, human connection is hard and mm-hmm. it's a skill. And the art of conversation is sometimes feels lost. And the art of figuring out fun things to do that are interesting is, you know, people don't even think to do it half the time. And how do you, you know, actually think about these things, admit it's hard and figure out a way forward. I, I do think that, um, and I'm a little bit stuck on this in general in my column right now, but I do think that a lot of the struggle to connect with people is based on shame. The, the essential problem of shame and being aware of what it means to feel shame and what 
what it does to you in a social setting when you start to kind of get into that place where your shame is kind of ever present. Um, I do think that that can be addressed separately in a way that allows you to have much more meaningful and genuine and authentic relationships with people. You know, the difference between trying to socialize when you have a lot of shame and you don't know where it's coming from and you're not, but you're, you're, it's like you're not that aware of it and instead it just gets triggered by everything around you. And the opposite, which is just like, I, you know, I know I have this shame thing. I try to be aware of it. I know that it comes from within me. It's not in the environment necessarily. Like just because I feel a lot of shame around a group of people doesn't mean that they're doing something to me, for example. I do think that that clarifies a lot of social situations. And it also makes it possible to do things socially that you wouldn't necessarily think you could do before because you're more aware like this is the sound my brain makes this is the sound my body makes when I'm in like a high stress social situation and it has nothing to do with how well quote unquote I'm doing or you know how well I'm performing or how well I'm entertaining people it just has to do with my noise right that I carry around with me because once you kind of are aware of that you get you just have more freedom in the world right you realize like oh my head makes these sounds if I'm, you know, at an Oscar party or if I'm at the corner store, you know, like I don't, there's not actually a qualitative difference to the feedback I'm getting. Yeah, I, I really like that. And shame is definitely one of those important topics right now that I think cuts to the core of how we find the vulnerability you need to connect with people. Yeah. And also you can feel sometimes the disappointment you feel after interacting with someone if you look at it really closely, it's sometimes it's wrapped up in your shame about how you feel like, oh no, I said too much about this, or maybe that person was judging me about that. And when you can let that go and separate it from the actual interaction, you might it might reframe your ideas about what the relationship is really made of, you know, without all of your you know toxic thoughts and your your shame getting in the way of really connecting. Hey, it's Hansa Bergwall, the host of You This Podcast. And alongside him, as always, Ian Thomas, the podcast and app editor. Yeah, uh, when we started this whole We Croak journey in the app, one of the first things we thought was that it would be way too dark for everybody. And what we actually heard from people was that uh, they wanted it to be bleaker and darker and possibly with more uh, quotes about corpses. Isn't that right, Ian? It's unbelievably right, Hansa. I remember, uh, you know, the majority of the emails, it seems like, that that came in when we uh, were first going viral. It was all about, um, you know, I thought this app was going to be even more about death. You know, why why do some of the quotes leave room for, for happiness and joy? It has to be bleaker. So I went and I, I found you did the Buddhist meditations where you meditate over rotting corpses, and I added them to the app, as well as a bunch of other stuff. And... You know, our, uh, our, our user, uh, uh, our rating went up a couple points. So um, the point is we are responsive to, uh, to our community when we hear from you. So head over to wecroak.com and let us know what you think of the podcast. There's a button there to become a patron, which you should definitely do, as well as a way to contact us to let us know, you know what, what kinds of questions you'd like to, um, us to ask 
what kinds of topics you'd like us to cover. Uh, this, the idea of this podcast is we talk about things that people don't talk about enough, starting with death, but uh, really leaning into anything that you want to you wanna hear about. So let us know. We adore hearing from each and every one of you. So be sure to hit us through our website or contact us through the app and help us keep pushing the We Croak universe into newer and newer dimensions and for, for going deep with us in, the, in this podcast. We weren't really sure if lots of folks would want to come along on Hearing About Death five times a day. And uh, now we're hearing about it for 50 minutes an episode. So thanks so much for, for being a part of it and for making, making it happen. It's all, it's all thanks to you and all due to you. Yeah, and if you forget to do it now, it's okay. Just uh, remember, you know, one of the five times a day that we pop into your life, <laughs> if you have that. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And now, back to the conversation at hand. So speaking of topics that tend to trigger or a lot of shame in people these days, I thought your essays the land of heroic villain and uh, haunted. These were sort of about gender. I thought were really good. Like this is a time when people are talking a lot about gender, but maybe not saying new things. But I didn't think that about you. I'm still kind of processing how big those sort of essays were. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know whether to dive into you know your thoughts about men or women first. <laughs> oh God. Um, I don't know. Where do we even begin, right? I mean, men um, comes first yeah. in the book, so we'll start there. You kind of—it's all based on sort of your careful viewing of the golden age of TV and other stuff like that. But then it just goes into, you know, all these constricted roles we are expected to pay, play as men or women in this world, and how awful some of them are. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the the villains chapter and your insights and. If you have any recommendations for guys out there to get through this stuff? When I thought a lot about that chapter, I didn't necessarily see it as like primarily a man thing, although the, the characters in question from TV are mostly male. It kind of starts out with the Sopranos, and I talked about how Tony Soprano is this, this strange character. When the show started... There were not a lot of shows on TV with, with deep, deeply unlikable protagonists, let's say. So this was a show where you had this guy who was just not just a criminal, but like ca- a casually, uh, unthinkably unethical, deeply corrupt, deeply selfish, gluttonous. I mean, basically all of the sins, the seven sin- deadly sins were kind of manifested in his person. And the show worked because James Gandolfini is such a good was such a good actor and was so good at making us feel empathy for Tony Soprano. And also David Chase really toyed with us as far as who Tony was. Like we'd see Tony sitting by his pool waiting for the ducks to come back, feeling kind of forlorn. And you just see him and think, oh, poor Tony, he's so lonely. You know, he can't connect with anyone. And then the next minute, Tony's like, eating a sandwich and shooting someone at the head in the head at the same time without really thinking twice about it. And so the show kind of put people in this weird, uncomfortable state of identifying with this person who feels lost and is sort of having a perpetual existential crisis and always wants more and has trouble connecting with his wife and has trouble connecting with his kids. I mean, a lot of what Tony does, 
Tony kind of reminds me a lot of Rabbit from the Updike uh, series, the Rabbit series. Rabbit Angstrom is a similar kind of patriarchal figure who can't connect with his wife, can't connect with his kids. I love those novels. But the strange thing about The Sopranos was we actually, you know, at the end of that series, we didn't uh, necessarily see Tony as bad. It's almost like we were encouraged to relate to him so so thoroughly. And we knew him so well after spending years and years in his company that we kind of excused what a sick, sick person he was. And, and to me, the finale of that show was sort of David Chase saying, you people have a real problem. You know that, you know, like just turning off the, you know, the, the, in the finale. Well, I, I wouldn't want to spoil it, I guess, 20 years later or whatever. It's funny how you can never spoil anything, right? It's like, you still haven't watched The Sopranos, but I can't, you know, spoiler alert. I won't say anything, but the finale kind of underlines the fact that, um, underscores the fact that David Chase was sort of like, I have, I have presented this unethical world. And the idea was that these people are creepy. And yet here on YouTube, there are all these dedications to Tony and Carm, a love that will last forever. You know, like these montages of to Carmela and Tony uh, kissing and wasn't it romantic uh, how much they loved each other. These two people who threw things at each other's head, heads. And um, essentially that essay traces from Tony Soprano to The Shield, uh, Vic Mackey. You drew a direct line from this culture that's willing to just love a man like Tony Soprano and all those sort of characters that came after that were also amoral, you know, maybe murderers, maybe rapists, but powerful and uh, complicated and sometimes unhappy, but, you know, basically successful, powerful and terrible um, mm -hmm. to a culture that was willing to protect Harvey Weinstein for decades and decades when many people kind of knew what was going on, but because of that power, people fawned instead of took a stand. And I thought that power was a really- by any means, right? Pa you know, if you have power, it doesn't matter how you got it, and it doesn't matter what you're doing with it. Somehow that's impressive. And, you know, the, the whole first year of Donald Trump's presidency took that shape. It was like, you know, wow, he's just a genius. Look at how he- manages to keep our attention you know it's it's just uh yeah i mean to me our culture as americans american culture has become this strange amoral sick crazy skin deep kind of uh fix just romance with power at all costs um and and i and there is obviously a major correction um happening uh, where you have these, very, you know, regular people taking very moral tones about ever the smallest thing because they can see pretty clearly that you know there's just a deep level of corruption going on in everything that you train your eyes on at this moment. It's it's hard to be eloquent about um, to speak eloquently about our current moment because it's just it feels like there are so many people doing it already. Um, it was one of the traps of my book was that. Everything seemed to lead to the kind of mess we're in right now. But the, the point of that essay really was that when you examine uh, villains and you apply all of the tricks of entertainment to the stories of villains and put them at the center of your narratives, eventually people start to accept that or believe 
that in fact villains are the most interesting people in any picture, which is, you know, and, and when you do this in the absence of emphasizing belief systems and values that make sense to people um, and that they don't have to obviously be attached to any religion, but just, you know, when in our culture, which is not that supportive of having a value system and sticking to it, or even developing your own value system, which I think is a, just a basic lack in most people alive today, because people don't live very examined lives where they where they build their own value systems from the ground up, which is what I would honestly recommend to anyone. It's very easy to feel lost, and it's very easy to feel like the only way to get ahead is by essentially doing doing what you know, uh, tricking people. Um, I just watched the uh, Fire Festival documentary on. Oh my god, that, <laughs> that was so crazy. This. I saw the Hulu one, but yeah. Oh my God. It, I mean, it's fascinating. And the thing is, I think a lot of us know a person like Billy McFarland. Like it, he's a very familiar figure these days. It's not like this is an uncommon person. It's almost like in some fields, uh, you know, you, you pathological liar is like a, is like a prerequisite for the, the job. It's fascinating and delightful though, to see, a close-up picture of someone who behaves that way and just causes chaos. The good, the nice thing of it, the internal structure of that documentary that's so nice is like, you know, this guy's going to get his comeuppance finally, you know, and that's satisfying because you can see, you know, the writings on the wall from the beginning, just like, oh my God, this guy. I mean, I feel like I went to college with like five guys exactly like that guy. He's so familiar. Yeah. I guess. What's really interesting to me at this moment is not that there's a few, you know, disturbed or psychopathic people out there that would try to get away with anything. I mean, obviously, history being what it is, you know that. It's just, why are so many people, like, ready to fawn over it? Yeah. Well, and, I think that when you when you have a culture that makes you feel powerless and invisible, it's hard not to get into anyone who can just be completely mediocre and average and still have tons of power and be visible. I think that people naturally cheer that on. I mean, the thing that they kept saying about Billy McFarlane is that, you know, all these guys around him kept saying what a genius he was. And I just kept thinking, I'm not seeing any evidence of that. I don't understand what you're talking about. Like this guy talks and moves through the world in a way that I don't see even the slightest shred of genius in this human being. All he does is say, it's already happening. You know, it's like he's like the opposite of Bartleby the Scrivener. Instead of saying, I'd prefer not to, he's just like, yes, it's happening. Like everywhere he goes, it's, it, it reminds me of um, being there, the movie. Mm -hmm. The main character it, it walks around, you know, saying the same simple things. And everyone's like, this guy's incredible. You know, he's like, I like to watch. He just says, I like to watch over and over again. And everyone's like, Chauncey Gardner for president. He's amazing. It's, it's sort of a projection of possibility, right? Because if this moron, could, if I can make him seem like a genius to myself, then I can make myself seem like a genius. It's all delusion. I think we, we live in a society that is addicted to delusions of grandeur as a means of escaping reality, right? I mean, that's one element of, of what we deal with every day and we see it every day. And that is the whole reason we croak exist. Try to get out of some delusions. <laughs> that we're permanent, that you can live like 
Tony Soprano or Harvey Weinstein and like have a good life. Like, no, have some values. Like there's no amount of money or anything else that will ever replace being proud of yourself because you were kind that day or like a good person. Like that's, I don't know. If you can feel it. I mean, (laughs) yeah, no, I absolutely agree. It's people don't know how to feel pride in that kind of thing. They don't know how they've lost the ability to, feel their way through their lives and feel the pride that comes from simple things and to really, I mean, this is why, you know, you build a value system, right? You, you encourage yourself to notice when you feel proud of doing a good deed, you know, you encourage yourself, but, but again, if you have a lot of shame, you, you don't know how to feel your feelings, right? And you're afraid of your feelings because you're you're you've been told that your feelings mean that you are you know that most of your feelings are negative feelings they're defined as negative and therefore and they're inconvenient they stand in the way of your ability to work 80 hours a week they stand in the way your ability the way of your ability to become someone different than the person you are today which is so important be better be bigger be someone else I'm sorry to dive in and get so granular, but I feel like there's such an essential severing of the person from their experience that it takes almost preaching about reconnecting with what you do and what matters about you and who you already are. Reconnecting with who are you? What do you care about? Versus this idea that you know, I mean, Fire Festival is the epitome of this. And I write a little bit about Fire Festival in my book. But the beauty of Fire Festival is that it was all just this one viral video of models swimming in the water. I mean, it's just like <laughs> the idea. And, th- and th- that's what Billy McFarland is also. It's like his idea was that he should be a person who went to cool parties with supermodels at them. Like, that's the whole picture. That's everything. You know, his know, credit card a... was about being that. Pro- and, and what that is, is it's being an image of something instead of feeling like a person in the world. You know what I mean? Like it, his whole goal was to be an image, which is two dimensional. You know, I am with a supermodel. We are drinking beer. There's no felt relationship to that outcome. Just like when we, pursue status we don't even know what we're chasing we don't know how it feels to be the people that we're trying to become and there aren't a lot of clear reflections on how empty people with a lot of status feel i mean i think donald trump has done us a glorious service in some ways by showing us just how miserable and clueless um, someone with a lot of money and power can be but we're essentially we're very fundamentally confused by what it actually feels like to be a success because a lot of successful people are miserable. I mean, that this is an underreported part of our culture. But it's so true. Uh, my first job out of college, I was in a support staff role for billionaires and oh my some God. of the most disturbed, unhappy people I've ever met were also the richest. So that is just true. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's, I think that would be an interesting book, just a study of the misery of the miserable behavior of the mega rich, you know, and just how it reflects on the sickness that builds from being, you know, feeling like you have complete control over your self 
and your environment and your trajectory. You know, oh. this obsession with I'm going to go, you know, escape to a bunker in New Zealand if everything goes tits up in the world, you know, <laughs> just like God. I, I, and also, I, I mean, I think the epitome of this, and I write about this in my book, is Timothy Ferris. You know, it's just like, you know, if you're an Uber man, you can, you know, work four hours a week and have crazy sex all the time. And, you know, you just have to monitor your biome and, you know, starve your stem cells. You know, they're just all these freaky, it just, it's like you're, you're taking all of the control freak traits that got you to a certain point and then you're using them to just implode yourself, like just destroy yourself. That kind of level of self-optimization is like killing yourself. It's just, it's like the same thing because you're not, you're not, you don't exist anymore. You're just a machine. You're trying to become a robot, essentially. So I would say that there's a lot of Timothy Ferris fans that are also into the We Croak thing. So I am oh, almost... Uh, <laughs> scared to say something about him i personally cannot read it my head explodes as soon as i like get into it because i don't know my the way he talks or something i just i can't do it what i admire about the people who like his work is this sort of this freedom to life engineer like you want to rather yeah. than yeah. as you're supposed to i think that is an incredibly important insight and clearly he was one of the early people that got a lot of um especially men but also some women interested in it um, yeah. But like you said, on the other side, it just feels like sometimes it's all stunts and optimization for optimization's sake and just like, you know, no real like value or substance there all the time. Like some of these things I heard about him doing, like doing like a kickboxing competition where he optimized how much he ate and water loaded. So he basically was cheating so that he could win in a different weight class without ever really learning how to kickbox. And it was just, I can't with that stuff. I just can't. Like, why would <laughs> Yeah. What's the point? I think that I'm kind of, I guess I am sort of zoomed in on the, um, I've listened to his podcast a little bit and there's just a lot of obsessive, just body <laughs> maximum. I don't know. I don't, I don't even know how to talk about it. It's just like ex obsessive fitnessy, sexual diety. I don't know. It just extreme monitoring of every single dimension of your animal self and your optimal health you know so you work four hours a week and then you spend the rest of the week just applying a a, a little litmus strip to your you know urine to see how much you're off gassing you know whatever I just I, I don't I, it's like ch changing daily life into work you know is what it feels like to me I sound like I'm just beating up on him. It's just, I'm just using him as a symbol of something that I find, you know, repugnant. But you I know, don't, you know, I, I don't I know definitely him. need to read him more to say with authority what exactly he's doing. But I will say from that sort of world of when I hear from it, I love the value of freedom that I sometimes hear from it. And I yeah, agree yeah, that when yeah. there's elitism, like I need to be the best for the best sake, that's yeah, yeah. not good. That's not for me anyway. Um, well, the freedom part of it is, I mean, that's probably a big part of your podcast. The freedom part of it is, I think, totally crucial. And, I, you know, it's something I talk about in my books, my, my most recent book and in my advice column all the time. And, and it's something that we forget, right? I mean, our culture kind of is built around the idea that we're not free and we shouldn't. It's almost like the only way to be free, right, 
in the view of our culture is by making a ton of money. And the truth is that it's not necessarily true that you need to be famous, rich and famous in order to be free. I mean, it's, it's obviously true that when you start to see that you're free to make all kinds of crazy choices in your adult life, I don't know, it, it's, it changes the landscape of what's possible, right? It is that issue of when someone is a little bit like you and is obsessed with some of the same things that you're obsessed with, you can experience that person as repugnant simply because you relate to parts of the picture, but they're making different choices than you would make in other areas. Um, I find uh -huh. that a lot with with gurus, you know, I mean, I wrote this chapter about gurus because I was sort of obsessed with like what I didn't want to do. I, I was sort of poised to kind of take on this kind of guru like career. And I had to say, I don't, I don't want that. But by the same token, I do think that the things that you have the biggest reaction to, sometimes there's a piece of what you're looking at that you're actually attracted to. I want to admit that like, that sometimes the things that you don't let yourself do, right, are things you actually want to do. So I want to admit to the internal conflict within this question. And, you know, it actually does kind of lead into the last thing I wanted to make sure I talked to you about on this podcast, which was your chapter Haunted, which is a lot about women and women in our culture and sort of the ways that people are constrained based on nothing more than, you know, what gender they were born at. You have this quote that, beauty and innocence always win, or that's what girls are usually told up to the exact moment when most of what they've been taught to value proves worthless. Kind of this idea that the you say the built-in suspense is part of your appeal and the suspense is like what sort of takes you down, ravages you, makes you not innocent anymore. And it seemed to me like it was, it was based on a lot of this cultural criticism again. It just seemed like a really important meditation on like the really tight constraints that we put on each other in this case especially women to do something like have freedom to design their life like be bold enough to do it their way when you're supposed to do it in this you know you call it an ingenue kind of way and I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and sort of maybe your journey of being a badass person that's not just trying to be like act like you know a girl is supposed to yeah, I mean, it's intense because I have two daughters, but when I was growing up, I was the youngest of three kids, and my parents were very different from each other, and they sort of had different ideas about what I should be, and in some ways, my dad rewarded me for being adorable and cute and entertaining and pretty, and then in other ways, he sort of made a distinction between the kinds of girls that he dated, you know, after my parents got divorced when I was 10 years old and who I should be. He was extremely unsettled when I wanted contacts, contact lenses when I was in eighth grade because I had been wearing glasses. I had these terrible glasses. It was like 1982. The glasses were almost like a Barbara Streisand, like tinted darker tint at the top to lighter tint at the bottom gigantic actually they're probably trendy now for all i know right everything comes back <laughs> but i looked ridiculous i had to, you know i just didn't wasn't that great at styling myself suddenly at age 12 and and contacts were kind of a way out of looking like the biggest geek alive and my dad was kind of like what are you trying to do are you trying to be glamorous 
Meanwhile, I had been completely, you know, socialized to show off. My dad was loved Shirley Temple and we'd watch Shirley Temple movies and I was encouraged to tap dance on the table and be adorable and crack little jokes. And we went to see Annie and my dad really loved the idea of me being, you know, on Broadway and all this stuff. And then my mom was just this very capable, very beautiful, very capable woman who was kind of low key and didn't, was not very coy and wasn't very into the sort of ideals of femininity and was sort of like modeled a very different way of moving through the world that was sort of over the idea of scrambling around for male approval. So I had this kind of built-in conflict in from a very early age. But really, what I think is the most upsetting about being, being a young girl and then becoming a young woman is that a lot of the things that sort of you can get away with as someone who's adorable these things, or, you know, someone who looks good and, you know, men are listening to you and you don't know why, and you know, it's partially because you look good and, you know, and it's partially just because you're a girl, right. And maybe you'll make out with them. Or, I, I don't know. I think that I had this, I turned this corner where I suddenly realized that I had been indulged. And then there's this time in your life where you, it's almost like people come out of the work woodwork to tell you, you've been indulged, you know, you were a little bit cute and a little bit charming, but now you're you're not you you're nothing. You're you're nothing and no one. You know what have you produced? Who are you? Why should we care? And I you know I I don't know that it's that easy to just tell the story of that trajectory. And what I tried to do in that essay was just explain the kind of feeling of you think that you're at the center of the universe. I mean, in, in some ways, as a little girl, you're really treated like the most the mo most sparkly beautiful thing in any room and then you turn a corner and suddenly people just want a piece of you and it's and you're kind of it's sort of revealed to be worth nothing um i mean that's a really harsh light to shine on it but i think a lot of women sort of encounter this feeling even you know and i think the me too movement is kind of an offshoot of this the discovery that every you're told that you should be is actually something that's going to be used to to kind of put you on the sidelines and marginalize you so then of course you have to rebuild who you are from the ground up and it is look one of the reasons that most of my friends are women at this point in my life is because women are really interesting adaptable idea focused human beings because that's how they survive this long. You know, I mean, most of the, I know a lot of men and this is sort of like a, a sweeping and harsh judgment. And I do, I used to have primarily male friends, just to be clear. Like I have a lot of different friends in a lot of different categories, but a lot of the women I know have had to reinvent themselves both in their careers and their personal lives in a million different ways. And they're very evolved human beings at this stage. I'm 48 years old and the women I know are really have a lot to say about how many times they've had to fit into a different box, you know, and just by dint of having more privilege at a younger age, a lot of the men I know are pretty hobbled at this point because they just didn't have to develop that many skills when they were younger. And, and granted, I'm really talking about people my generation. I'm not talking about uh, millennials at all. But they didn't, I, I know a lot of stuck men who don't understand the first thing about how to get unstuck. And maybe that's 
part of what Timothy Ferris's appeal is, you know? Um, Definitely, actually. Doing that kind of deep level of auditing of like, how can I feel connected to my life? So I, you know, I, I guess I applaud that. I just, I, I guess what I really want to say is a lot of good things have come out of the the terrors that I describe in that essay. You know, I mean, a lot of great artists and writers have kind of blossomed because of the the hell that they went through when they were younger. But I do think that there's a specific kind of strange torture in being told that your value is one thing and then turning a corner and realizing that everything that you've built yourself to be is worthless. And maybe maybe there's just this moment of reckoning among men where they kind of are facing the same sort of experience from the culture, where suddenly they feel like everyone is telling them that the things that used to be so wonderful about you actually make you reprehensible now. Well, they, they definitely are. And maybe that's a separate discussion, but it's more like if you're not a Tony Soprano, powerful and terrible by the time you're a certain age, then you're nothing. And a lot of... yeah men lose it at that point and there's you know that men are actually losing life expectancy to addiction and suicide and stuff like that probably because most people don't make it in that way and become powerful and become like they're supposed to be and if you don't have another values-based life you know it gets lonely and dark out there yeah Um, and talk about shame right i mean i think men have a lot of shame around career success that really eats them alive at some point if it doesn't happen and that's something that women have kind of i mean Women my age were sort of like, I don't know, I did I ever really expect to be successful? Of course not. I just thought I was going to linger in the shadows forever, you know? Like, I mean, that that seemed to be what other women expected for themselves, so that's what I expected for myself. Well, what struck me about that, that insight that I read and that chapter, which was really, really dark, and maybe that's why I wanted to talk about it, because it seemed also important, is there's this way in which these things that seem really benign, like you know, treating your children like princesses or um, one day to be the successful prince or something like that, you know, just sets people up to get preyed on later, you know, if those aren't strong values. And I'm thinking about some close friends of mine, you know, who are women who, you know, had years before, you know, told me their stories of being sexually harassed at work. And something about those conversations just resonated with me. I, I remember thinking of them in that chapter because it just felt like, there was this feeling of huge betrayal. Like, how could I be treated like this? I did everything right in this kind of way. And all of a sudden, the wolves swept in. You know, this sort of moment, it feels like a lot of people are finally talking about having that experience. Maybe we got to look deep into just the DNA of our culture of like what we're telling women and men they have to be. I mean, I do. I think that there, there are um, big sea changes happening in the way that we... Um, view gender, obviously, and the way that we interact with each other. It's confusing because the culture is so is still, though, so traditional in some ways. I have a 12-year-old, and that's really the center of that moment of, you know, trying to be as sort of for a girl like her, you know, it's like this this is like the height of femininity, really. I mean, she's she's her concerns are incredibly kind of traditionally feminine in a lot of ways and you know looks are important and instagram is interesting and there's almost like this delighted flirtation with the whole world i mean i remember feeling that way and i don't it's really hard because i want to say to her all the time and i do say to her all the time like you enjoy what you enjoy like you are the decider you get to decide 
you know, how you want to spend your time and what you value. And it's not up to anyone else to decide that for you. I don't want to shame any her for anything that she's into, unless it's like, you know, vaping. <laughs> she's not into, thankfully. Kids are into vaping. Uh, it's weird. Um, weird. But I, it's this weird, you're walking this weird line because you want to say, you know, I mean, okay, so we watched The Bachelor, for example, together. And part of that is just, I sort of want her to see the absurd sexist parable that unfolds before your eyes. Like the man will choose one of these beautiful women, you know, which one I want her to know what a dead end it can be (laughs) to be the best, the most impressive, adorable woman in the room, the most charming, you know, I mean, it's sort of built into that. I mean, the bachelor is like a cautionary tale. You're all competing for the same dude who really isn't that great. And what you notice mostly is you start to like this contestant or that. I mean, I call them contestants, but you start to like this woman or that woman. And in the end, you like the people who are competing for the person better than the person himself. You're sort of like, oh, God, she can do better than him. Um, I've gotten (laughs) to know her. I really like her now. I don't want her to win, quote unquote, win him. That's a lot of like what it feels like to be a woman in high school is sort of like, ugh, like, what am I competing for? <laughs> you know, like, what's even on the table here? This is all feels empty. I don't know. I, it's a, it's such a big question. Gender is just so big. And I, you feel like I, I, there's, there's almost no way to avoid saying something stupid about it. And especially as a parent, it's just like, you can't, you can't follow your own preferences and tell another human being, like, here's what you should prefer too. All you can do is just expose your kids to a lot of different things and have conversations about it and let them be who they are, right? And let them decide what they're going to decide. I think I'm getting more to figure out what I was so intrigued by that passage is because, you know, it is tough to be a man or woman in America today. And I don't want to shame anyone either. If you love being young and beautiful, I get it. I love, you know, being young and being healthy and, you know, being able to, like, do things. It makes sense. But getting back to, you know, the whole we coke thing, it's like, you got to have a little bit more because, you know, beauty, youth are impermanent. Success is capricious, um, often based on things that, you know, we have no control over. So if you want something sturdier that will take care of you, you need to have deeper values. Yeah. The thing that's crazy about being a parent is you, you want to gently point in that direction and you talk, you end up talking about what you value a lot, just as a person, because it kind of comes up that some of the things that kids are into have nothing, of course, nothing at all to do with like some deeper value. But it's, it's strange, because if you say too much, right, if you say, your looks will leave you someday, you know what I mean? Like, there's almost no way of not having conversation be a little bit dark, or sometimes people only like you because you're cute. You know, it's like, if I say to my daughter, Sometimes you look around and you realize that everyone around you likes you because you're cute and you seem like someone who isn't as complicated as you actually are. And you have to act like you're less complicated than you are to keep the attention of these people that want someone who fits seamlessly into their vision of how they want to appear to other people. But you can't you you can't really pull the bloom off the rose for another person. Right. Right. I mean, and and if anything. If you're, you know, age 13, age 14, and your mom keeps telling you everything's skin deep, you know, a lot of 
people will just deep dive into the skin deepness and bang their head over and over because they're being told not to want what they want, right? I mean, I, I think that you just, I don't know. It's strange. I, I'm trying to make peace with this because I felt like I was just so dismayed at every turn when I was in junior high and high school. And and I know those things are ahead for my daughter too, but it's but it's also just, I think actually it all kind of winds back to guilt and shame. It's sort of like what you really don't want to do is add shame to the picture. What you want is to, to kind of teach people by example that I care about experience. I care about my relationship to my work. I love working when I'm working. I love being around my kids. And just like when you sort of model joy, not just happiness, but when you model looking for joy as opposed to doing what you should do because other people decided you should be doing it. That I think is the most valuable thing. It's almost like the things, it's not about the things that you teach by saying, Hey, remember Mm -hmm. that guy's only after this, or your friends are pretty shallow. Remember, remember your friends are really shallow. You (laughs) You can't do that. You actually just have to say what I love or or, you know, just like run into the room and play with the dogs and you're modeling joy in front of your kids or go over to your kid and talk to your kid or listen to them. And you're modeling listening as a source of joy. You know, it's it sounds so kind of obvious and basic. But one of the reasons why I exercise a lot is because I need to be happy and joyful around my kids and exercise makes me feel more joy in my day to day life. I just feel like that's my main job. My main job is to demonstrate how you can live a joyful life. That's and get along with another human being, you know, like have a good marriage that's not complete bullshit, that's just like about honesty, you know. realized that I didn't have an eternity to live the way I wanted to live and that it was going to be my focus needed to change from five years from now, 10 years from now to just now. And, you know, a lot of happiness came out of making that decision to just say, this is what I have. I'm not going to have a ton more. Even if I ever do, it's not going to make the biggest difference. The biggest difference will be made by learning how to take a day and suck the life out of it, you know, and just love the hell out of it and savor it. And so since I decided that my life has kind of transformed, I mean, I just feel a lot more happiness. I don't have time, right? In some ways, I feel like I have more time than ever because each day feels a little longer because I savor it more. But it's also true that um, I feel like I don't, I can't just sit around being depressed for a stretch of time. I would just kind of refuse to do that. It's not that I'm not sad at times or I don't have off weeks, but it just feels like this is my life. It's not, when I was younger, it kind of felt like, oh, I'm depressed right now. I'm in a depressed phase. Like this could last, God, how long will this last? Now it's sort of like, of course that can't last long because I don't have all the time in the world. And this is the time I have. What am I going to do with it? It's my choice. It's not just, oh dear, I tripped and fell and I guess I'm on the floor now forever. I don't know. It's I'm trying to get at some kind of 
shift in the narrative that I made that I think is really crucial that I see in younger people a lot, but whatever, it's, it's hard to kind of boil it all down and say, here, you know, here's what I discovered. It, it works really well. I think you did. And it, it resonates with me anyway. Okay. So thank you. Well, good. And I got thank one. you for being so generous with your time today. I, I was having so much fun talking to you that I let us run a little bit over what I said, but it's because you're really interesting. So thank you. Well, it was great talking to you too. I, I like that you course corrected my course on a few things too. I feel like I could learn a lot from you and I'm definitely going to um, tune into your podcast more. I feel It feels like it's right up my alley. Oh, awesome. We'd love to have you. And uh, once again, your book, What If This Were Enough by Heather Haverleski, I definitely recommend that, you know, it's just, it's a lot of big ideas like the ones we were discussing today, but also pop culture presented in a way that just is really approachable and easy to like, you know, bring up with your friends uh, at a dinner table or something because, you know, you're using these, this sort of pop culture as a, as a screen. Well, thank you so much. I'm, I'm, I'm so gratified to hear that you, that you enjoyed the book. All right. Well, thank you so much and have a wonderful day. You too. Nice talking to you. Thank you for joining us for our most extensive episode yet. If you enjoyed it, please let us know by leaving us a review on iTunes. And get ready, Patreon supporters. Our first batch of Live Immediately mugs is going to be shipped this month. Until then, see you next time.